Buddies. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. Thank you for the Outstanding Ohio Show. Hosted by my daddy. Hosted by my daddy. Thank you, Ryan and Sawyer, for that great introduction to the Outstanding Ohioan Show, where I believe that Ohioans are doing great things to make their communities, their state, their region, and their world a better place through their contributions, and I believe it's my job to help share those stories whenever possible. Thank you for tuning in and to enjoy today's episode. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. Today is episode 59, and I have the pleasure of having a conversation with David Kelly, who is a longtime philosophy teacher, writer, and founder of the Atlas Society with a focus on teaching and promoting objectivism. And during the course of our conversation, I'm sure we're going to get into what all of that means. So, David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Delighted to be here. All right. So what I always like to do for the audience, since this is the Outstanding Ohioan Show, could you give a little background on your links to Ohio, where you grew up, and some of your influences in life? Uh, yes, I was. Uh, I grew up in Cleveland, around Cleveland. Um, my family, my father was a lawyer. Um, I was the oldest of uh, five kids. Um, we moved when I was maybe seven or something. We ended up in Shaker Heights on the east side, and that's where I went to. Uh, went through school, including high school, public uh, high schools. And um, so, yeah, my, my uh, while my parents were alive, I, I and my brothers and sisters would often go back. Um, I still have friends there, but uh, I've, I've been living on the East Coast ever since. Okay. Uh, who are some of your... When you were growing up, who were some of your early influences in life, and were you were you steered to objectivism at that point? Um, well, I can I found uh, Ayn Rand's writings. Uh, first of all, the, her novel *The Fountainhead*, which was published in 1943, uh, I found that on my parents' bookshelf and read it, and was so uh, engaged by it. Um, I think I was maybe 15 at the time. Anyway, I was doing a lot of thinking, like like a lot of teenagers, uh, you know, thinking about what I wanted to do in life, what my standards were, who I was as a person. And um, and I had a kind of philosophical bent. I, looking back, I could see that I had, um, what I now understand are philosophical questions kind of always intrigued me. So uh, Ayn Rand's uh, novel presented both a great, it was a great story, but it also presented uh, an intriguing new perspective on a lot of issues in ethics, in, in particular, um, uh, and specifically about independence and integrity to yourself. It's about an architect who um, goes his own way and um, is, has to uh, overcome a lot of resistance from traditional architects and people who are really afraid or settled by his independence. Uh, and I was so uh, interested in the novel that I went out and read uh, her other works. Uh, I think read all of them um, before I finished high school. The, the 
district about um, how what's happening and how it, it can be fixed. Uh, and so by that point, I, I, I knew, by the time I left high school, I knew I wanted to study philosophy and that um, I was open to other views and, and uh, you know, challenges to Ayn uh, Rand's philosophy, objectivism. But I was pretty sold on it uh, as a, you know, personal code and, and an intellectual structure that it's just, it's that conviction that's remained in all these years. You mentioned the conviction to it uh, during your studies and, you know, if you could talk about where you went to school and what you studied, what were there any challenges from in the philosophy realm that really made you look at Ayn Rand closer, or you, and and then you stayed committed? Were there any challenges to your thought process there? Uh, well, it's an interesting question uh, because Ayn Rand was not well regarded by the academic philosophers then, and pretty that, that's still pretty much true. And so there's some attention to her work uh, by other thinkers, uh, sometimes critical. And some of the criticisms are, you know, raise questions that, that don't, in my judgment, don't really challenge or undermine the philosophy, but they raise questions for uh, to be resolved or to be uh, to develop so questions that if we can answer them, we'll just um, have a fuller, richer philosophy, philosophical system. Um, but by and large, um, because she was, uh, Ayn Rand was not taught very often or, or recognized as a philosopher by, by the academics, um, most of the, most of the challenges and questions um, came from other objectivists. We'd sit around talking and thinking, okay, what what does this mean? Or how do we deal with this issue? And sometimes, you know, we got into puzzles um, and it, it uh, and that's, that's been the real stimulus to my own research as a, you know, original philosopher that, um, trying to expand the philosophy and, you know, bring it to deal with more technical issues and, you know, more specific um, uh, theoretical issues and also applications to, uh, to the world. But it, I would say most of the uh, challenges came from within. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure this is a question you get a lot, and it's one, as I've been reading, as, as I've told you the last couple of years and learning more about Ayn Rand, how do you define objectivism? or faith 
or emotionalism. Uh, and in that regard, I should say, objectivism is a secular philosophy. You know, we don't have to subscribe to any view of a, of a divine being or another realm um, because we don't think reason can support that. Uh, so that's reason. Secondly, um, achievement. One of the things in, in, that really jumps out at you and Ayn Rand's ethics is that, um, I mean, starting with the sort of commonplace observation that human beings don't adapt to their environment the way other animals do, or we're not confined to that, but we can alter our environment, we can improve it, we can produce and create new things machines, cities, agriculture, you name it. And that's how human life uh, advances in general. But it's also, she thought, a core purpose. It gives meaning to individual lives. The, the goal of achieving that I'm going to uh, realize myself by through what I do in the world. It's kind of um, and her, in this regard, she's kind of a, a unusual among novelists because her heroes, I mentioned uh, the Fountainhead, where the hero's an architect, so that he was an artist. Okay, that's not so unusual for a novelist to write about, make a hero out of an artist, but also a businessman and an engineer. Uh, in Atlas Shrugged, the heroes are business people, captains of industry, and that is very rare. Um, mm -hmm. But she honored, I mean, you know, she was perfectly aware that there are rotten business. In fact, almost half the people in business characters in the novel who are business people are cronies or looters. Or, but the, the, the good guys are, uh, um, you know, a woman who runs a railroad, uh, a man who runs a steel mill. Remember, this is written in the 50s, so it's still the industrial era kind of. Um, so anyway, achievement is both um, uh, the essence of what makes humanity so distinctive, and it's also an individual value that can be the center and purpose of your life. So that's reason and achievement. The third pillar is um, individualism, and that means relying on your own mind. First of all, um, we have choices. We have the ability we have free will, and um, how we use our mind, whether we even choose to use our mind, is really up to us as individuals. And we're responsible for what we believe, what we claim to know, and how we decide to act. Uh, we have to rely on our own judgment. We can learn from others. We learn immense amounts from others, but at the end of the day, it has to be our learning and our evaluation of um, the truth. Of, of what we're being taught. Um, and independence also, I'm sorry, uh, individualism also means that um, the pursuit of, of one's life and happiness as an ultimate goal. It's non, it's not, a, this objectivism is not a philosophy of sacrifice or living for something higher um, like, you know, uh, like a religion, like the society, like the environment, whatever, we, we, uh, each person's life is an ultimate goal for that person. 
misogynist because especially in when she was writing against the background of uh, the 20th century collectivism and self-sacrifice for the communist regime or the fascist regime for that matter she was emphasizing the sanctity and um, the nobleness of making a good life for oneself again not to the exclusion of of having relationships with others, but they have to be the relationships that work in your life. And it, has, it should be win-win. Um, it, that is, it should be voluntary <clears throat> with both parties, um, whether at both parties uh, gaining value, trading value for value, whether we're talking about an economic exchange, like you know, buying your groceries, or friendship, love, um, it has to be it has to work for both people or it, there's no reason for it. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the third pillar, uh, individualism. And then finally, uh, her uh, belief in political philosophy was based on freedom. And that means economic freedom as well as freedom of thought, freedom of conviction, freedom of speech. She was what we would now call a libertarian uh, with the idea that the government's role is just to protect our individual rights um, resolve disputes through a court system and uh, protect the country against aggression, protect the populace against crime, but that's about it. Not to run our lives, not to manage our businesses or, uh, you know, anything beyond that. It's really that I, I think she had the vision of the founders of the United States. It, the government has a very limited role, important but limited. David. So that's, that's in a nutshell, reason, achievement, individualism, freedom. What I find very interesting that helped shape, shape her views, uh, which she, she talks about being born with them in, in interviews I've seen, and, and I'm going to post in the show notes some links to YouTube videos that I've seen, uh, such as an interview, a couple interviews with Phil Donahue. That are, that are really neat to watch. Uh, can you give a little bit of her background? Because something I observed is almost, well, I would say not almost, just surprise and shock about how many Americans were embracing socialism and communism and collectivism because of her background where she grew up before she came to the United States. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yes, certainly. She was born in 1905 in St. Petersburg, Russia. Uh, and so she was 12 when the Bolsheviks took over and installed a communist system. And it was a horrendous time. Uh, her father was a small businessman. He owned a pharmacy. They were Jews. And as I understand it, um, there was even uh, under the czars, there were limits on what um, uh, Jews what kind of businesses they could operate in the city. But anyway, it was a small business. They had a shop. They, the family lived above the shop. And uh, the, Bol- the, the Bolsheviks came in and expropriated the property because they were a bourgeois, in the Marxist term. They were you know, business people. And um, so they lost their property. They lost their business and uh, were really reduced to poverty. Uh, Ayn Rand uh, went through 
University of Leningrad um, and got to study history and philosophy. Uh, but then uh, she was enraptured by, by film. She always wanted to be a writer, but she was also enraptured by film. And this, these were the early days of film. Um, we're talking about the 1920s. And she somehow, and she also knew that she had to get out of Russia. Uh, she, films gave her a vision of what America was like, the skyscrapers, <laughs> happy, productive people. Uh, she wanted to come here and um, finally was able to get a visa and, you know, just never went back. Uh, she started, began working, she went to Hollywood and worked in the film industry, um, mainly as a script editor and all kinds of other jobs, but she began writing her novels at that time. And as you say, or alluded to, in the, especially during the 1930s, um, a lot of people had a very positive uh, view of socialism. It seemed like a philosophy of brotherhood and togetherness and fairness. And she knew better because she had lived through it. And she saw it as a system of oppression and uh, driven by envy and, and, and just lowering everyone down to a common level uh, and a complete absence of freedom. So she was appalled when she saw and came to America and found so many people of that era, including leading intellectuals, um, praising Russia, the noble experiment, I called it. And so she uh, began writing um, some, you know, just a political commentary about that. And to, but her novels come out so strongly um, for the individualism and reflecting the philosophy that I outlined a moment ago. Some people have said, well, they tried to explain her, what they called her extreme individualism, by her early experience uh, in Russia. I think my understanding from what I've read and a few very brief and, you know, conversations with her um, while she was still alive, uh, that she was, her convictions were pretty rooted in a philosophical vision. Uh, her experience in Russia just told her how important those issues were. Um, that, you know, the fate of individuals and a whole country can depend on the ideas that are embraced, widely embraced, and put into action. And she thought communism was not only uh, economically a disaster, but morally evil. So, uh, that was a conviction. I but it was certainly cemented by her, her experience. She had lived through it. Right. That, something I'm interested, David, in, in your career as an academic, how, how would you how would you describe the the climate on college campuses? Have they always been left leaning in your experiences? Have they have they were they more left leaning in the past versus today, or has it, or is it vice versa? What what have you observed, and how did you, how did you work within that system? Excuse me. Well, let me just give you a little um, uh, personal framework. I went to uh, Brown University uh, for college. I went there in the late sixties, and at the time. Um, the 
say. You know, most most of the faculty, and for that matter, the bulk of the students were probably middle of the road, maybe a little left center. Um, but then the, you know, thanks to the Vietnam War and other things, the campuses at that time kind of erupted. Um, and we had um, all kind of, you know, people taking over dean's offices and the Kent State shootings um, set off another wave of protest. So it, it got pretty hairy. I mean, there was, there was probably more violence in those last last years of the 60s, early 70s, um, than there is even today. But the climate of opinion was, I would say, uh, I would say it was kind of more exceptional. Um, the protests during the um, 60s were really based on, on incidents, the Vietnam War, uh, and then the election of Richard Nixon. And um, it, but I think over time, but, but my experience of, of, as a philosopher in a philosopher department and taking other courses, and then I went to graduate school, got a PhD, began teaching um, at college. And, you know, I was, I, I was known as kind of an outlier for my political views. But, you know, it was, at least in, especially in philosophy, philosophers respect anyone who's good at the field and can hold his own in discussion and argument, uh, which I did. And so, uh, I, my, uh, after grad school, I was teaching at Vassar College. It was a, a pretty nice place, um, you know, hospitable place. Um, even though I was, as I said, a kind of outlier. Over time, um, Vassar itself became more left-wing. Um, in the 80s, there was the whole uh, Reagan and the nuclear, um, you know, build-up of nuclear power against the Soviet Union. And it became more, more and more intolerant of any view except the kind of the left. Um, and... I'd left Vassar in the 80s and have been uh, independent ever since, writing, and then I founded the Atlas Society, which uh, we can come back to. But uh, I have observed what's happening on campuses over the last, I would say, you know, 20 years or so. And there's definitely a movement, and especially the last few years, with, uh, you know, the Black Lives Movement, the Me Too Movement. There's a lot of identity politics that is... Uh, now coming to the point of denying the value of freedom of speech and intellectual diversity, um, which is much worse than, I mean, it's, it's much worse a uh, culture, uh, intellectual culture, than anything I experienced when I was working uh, in that environment. So I think things, in that respect, things have gotten worse. They may not, there's violence, maybe not quite as much as some of the 60 years of the 60s, but there is a much more pervasive uh, hostility to um, the people on you know my side of the political spectrum. David, maybe maybe this maybe this question perplexes you, or maybe you maybe you can give some thought to it. What I find very interesting is, you know, you mentioned the Vietnam and the protests, which seem to be very much focused on freedom, anti-state, anti-establishment. 
why why has especially on college campuses why has it why has the movement gone to embracing statism versus freedom and non freedom principles and non-aggression i i just can't wrap my head around how the protests went from anti-establishment anti-state to very much a status model so interesting about that is the people that quote unquote would identify in these groups if they step out of lockstep and and go against the identity politics they're vilified it's it's very interesting how there's how it's gone to this collectivist model statement, David, and hear your thoughts about it, because, you know, kind of my guiding light in in my thinking, because I really didn't pay a lot of attention to politics 
two that was starting in 2007 with the Ron Paul Liberty Movement. Uh, uh-huh. So the statement I wanted to make was this. I want to get your thoughts on it. Uh, and I fully understand that they would never do this because, in my mind, there's not a lot of differences in the establishment Democratic and Republican parties. Had the Republican Party gone all in on Ron Paul and supported him, I think he would have. I think he would have been president in 2008 uh, with his plat- having the, the increased platform. Uh, because in my heart of hearts, I still believe a, a vast majority of Americans believe in the freedom philosophy, believe in the princi- in the principles of it, but they just there's not. There aren't people articulating it to get people in that mindset thinking about it. Uh, well, I, that's an interesting uh, speculation, uh, and I can't, I can't really say. Um, I mean, it's you know, what if questions about you know alternative paths in a you know what society as big as the U.S. are are kind of tricky. I mean, it's interesting to imagine. Yeah, indirectly, 
I heard Ron Paul reference in speeches, Ayn Rand, and, you know, that was, again, kind of something that, that tilted me towards her. Uh, question about her novels, because I, I shared with you that I, I don't read much fiction, and that's probably why for for years I, I didn't really dive into her her work. Uh, but But I have. Who's your favorite character from her novels and why? I don't know if I can narrow it down either, and I don't have near your your breadth of knowledge on it, but I, I can say the John Galt speech, the Hank Reardon courtroom speech, and the Howard Work courtroom speech, they should be required reading for every kid in America. And they're, it, it, so, much, so much of what we've talked about so far were laid out in those three speeches, and I, I, I just find them very inspirational. To, to read the text and kind of, and understand what they're referring to. Yeah. 
one of the uh, again, I, I'm just this is a personal digression, but I, I worked on the uh, the movie adaptation of Atlas Shrugged that came out in the early three parts, 2011, 2012, 2014. And so uh, they, uh, I was a, just a consultant, but I they finally asked me to um, edit those speeches for the film. They had to be shortened a lot. Um, and I essentially wrote the called speech for the movie um, because I, you know, I was a philosopher. And um, reducing uh, a 60-page speech to basically, I, I think it was about five minutes of screen time, was, uh, right. was pretty challenging. <laughs> right. I want to go. I want to talk. Ask you more about the movie because that's where I first came across you. I shared that, uh, but but before we do that, talk about the Atlas Society. And I'm I'm so interested in processes like this. You know, first of all, what was your thought press thought process for founding it? What was what was the process to make it an official society? You know, what does that mean? And and where are you at today with it? I was describing her life. I 
it's on our website, and I uh, urge anyone who's interested to uh, go check it out. But uh, so, so now the Atlas Society is under um, kind of new leadership. We're emphasizing um, more, focusing more on student um, engagement, student activities. We're working with um, a, a number of organizations that are also focused on students and is growing rapidly on campus. I'm, I'm very pleased to see that there are more and more people who um, are fighting back or wanting to resist the kind of political correctness and identity politics on campus. You made, you made a point there, David, that I, I'm going to make a parallel to from my observations. You talked about an open society versus a closed society. It seems to me that's a very similar issue in the Libertarian Party, where there's just, there's some of the hardline closed people that if you don't believe this, this, and this, and this about every single perspective, you can't be a Libertarian versus the open mindset of just, if we could just get get these alliances with the different issues, perhaps we can help move the needle a little bit more. What are your thoughts about that? sense. Uh, you, you mentioned that you you met Ayn Rand personally. Can you share what that experience was like and how did that happen? Um, it happened, I guess, she, in the 70s, I, I guess I finished grad school about 74 or 5, and uh, I moved to New York and I was there. I got, got to know people, including Leonard Peacock, who was Visual appearances, and, 
said yes. So uh, it was a brief encounter. But then after that, she was speaking regularly every year um, at this uh, in Boston at the Fort Hall Forum. It was a long, long-running, well-established kind of public forum. And when she spoke, you know, a lot of us, when I was in college, now and I would go up to hear her. And um, as I got to know her a little bit, um, I would be part of, you know, the, the group that had reserved seating. I would uh, meet and talk with everyone else um, after it. So I didn't talk with her a lot, honestly. Um, she was old. She was, I've been burned not only by the critics who poured vitriol on her ideas, but by personal breaks and disappointments in people. And so she's pretty cautious, but she was, um, she, she was also, you know, warm. She was just like a Russian. Uh, sometimes I thought of her, you know, this is a, a Russian grandmother. You know, he, he, um, <laughs> uh, and so, you know, it was fine, it, but I was, it was, I was, it was a, it was a pretty casual, occasional, not close relationship. I just, you know, flat out I had a chance to meet her in person. Um, but that's about it. Okay. Um, want, want to go back and, and, and talk about the movie, David, that, that you helped consult with. How did, how did you hear that this was in the works and how did you get involved with it? Um, 
you saw the films. I have, uh, yes. Um, I think there's still there's still a lot of value in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, in, in broad strokes, they are they are faithful to the ideas and to the story. No, I, I agree, and I, I let my oldest son, who's seven, watch some some of it, and he he understood it, and uh, wow. was very yeah was was very fascinated by it. And we 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 talk about these things pretty much on a daily basis. Um, you know, going back to individualism, even I always what I always try to relate is anything that government's doing related to if if you or I did that that's kind of a, the way I've approached all of that right and 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 I think he, it, it helps him understand that but he yeah he he was upset with me when I I watched him on I said well they're they're they, they kind of have some adult themes there <laughs> but he <laughs> but but yeah he he certainly under, under understands the basic concept of it, and it's something that we we, we talk about quite a bit. Uh, and he's seven. Yes, yeah, he'll he'll wow. be he'll be eight. Uh, I, I don't know if you're aware of it, but there's an author named Connor Boyack in Utah uh, who writes a children's book series called the Tuttle Twins, and it very much focuses on the principles of freedom. And uh, in, fa- in fact, his he. There's six books that have come out. Uh, the fifth one uh, dealt with Ayn Rand and individualism, and I'll, I'll share that link with you. Uh, oh, great! I, I, this is all, all news to me. I wasn't aware of it. Yeah, he's uh, yeah he's written six books, and they focus on entrepreneurship. Uh, Ron Paul was a character in one of his books. Uh, uh-huh. He talked he talked about central planning. Uh, he talked about Bastiat in one of them, a natural law. Uh, talked about Leonard Reed and, and the free market. Uh, uh, I have two two sons who are seven and five, and they love the books. And, oh, and, that's great. And we we've yeah we we read them all the time, and yeah they're they're very much into them. I'll I'll share that with you because it Connor deserves a lot of credit for for introducing these themes to kids and. His his whole mission was I couldn't find any books to teach my kids about this stuff, so he decided to do it on his own. And he's got a great illustrator who develops develops the drawings with the books. And uh, every kid I've seen that reads them really enjoys them immensely. Uh, so. That's great. That's great. Yeah, do send me the link. I'd like to follow up on it. Yeah, absolutely. and maybe you know I, I I don't have kids myself, but um, I know a lot of people who are. Absolutely, yeah. He had one on the Fed. It, 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 just, just great stuff. Um, what I, what I did want to get your definition on, and uh, and, and then I, I kind of want to wrap up hearing about what it's like living in D.C. and the political environment, and, and if, what involvement you have there. Uh, but can you define? Because I, I believe this. This word gets misconstrued more than any other and, and demonized as a result of it. Can you talk about what true laissez-faire capitalism means versus what 
that exists in the United States, which is often being used as the definition of the word. people become involved, learn more, learn more about the Atlas Society and become involved with it? Well, I think uh, the best, best way is go to our website, um, atlassociety.org, and um, you can sign up for a newsletter, which will bring you news uh, about everything we're doing, the uh, conferences we're sponsoring and attending and participating in about new work that we are producing. And, um, and then explore, because we have, I don't know, a couple thousand pages, each page being an article or um, of different lengths. Uh, across the whole range, some are, are fairly abstract philosophical works, including some, a lot of mine. Uh, some of them are political commentary, cultural commentary. Some of them, as I was mentioning before, we, we started producing these short-form uh, videos that are very, very well done. And those um, on our website, just go to a, you know, the main menu and click on Now Playing <laughs> uh, just to sample those. And you know, from there, um, you, know, you, you can follow up on, uh, if you're getting the newsletter, we can, you can follow up on anything that we're doing. You'll know when we're going to be speaking at a given conference. So, you know, you can, if you're nearby and interested, you can come. We'd love to meet anyone who's interested. Uh, and, um, and then, of course, we're a nonprofit, so we do depend on contributions. And, uh, you know, and we have contributors at all levels from, you know, uh, fairly small-scale individual support uh, to... Uh, uh, you know, our major donors who are uh, heavily invested in this. So I think about that, too. If you like what you see, um, we, uh, it costs money to produce. Sure, sure. Okay. Well, David, if you can hold the line, I'm going to just sign off there, and then uh, we'll wrap it up. Okay. Uh, thanks. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, thank you so uh, much. Uh, okay. All right. All right. Have a great one. All right. Well, thank you for turning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. This was episode 59 with David Kelly, who is a longtime philosopher, teacher, and writer, and the founder of the Atlas Society. Hope you enjoyed the show, and have a great day.